Hello, everyone. It's so, so good to be here. It's been, uh, I think, 11 years since I was last in this room, which is far, far too long. It doesn't feel that way um, uh, when you grow up somewhere. Um, and, uh, and especially uh, being in this room doing some theology teaching, I was reflecting yesterday that this is, in, uh, in a way, the first place where I really studied theology or learned theology with, with my dad sitting in this room in his, his classes, theology that has held up well. Um, for me, so I'm glad to give it, have a chance to sort of give back a little bit. Um, and what I want to talk about today, I hope it's uh, of interest um, to you. It it's, comes out of the research I've been doing recently. I want to talk about the theology of creation and give kind of a little bit of a mini lecture on it the way that I might to my students um, at Cambridge University, but also drawing out why I think the doctrine of creation, especially as St. Augustine understood it, is something that's very profound and affects how we should see each other and the world. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to basically make two points and then draw out uh, two implications, um, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to talk. The doctrine of creation, this is, and what I'm going to say is just, it's what all Christians believe, really. Nothing that I'm saying is really controversial across, um, across confessional denominations. Um, the doctrine of creation is the Christian theory of reality. It's the way of talking about what, what the world is, what it's like, what it's for, what we're for, um, why things exist. And the answer, of course, is that they were made by God for his his purposes. Um, and so it's just a good thing to know about uh, in general, though it's a topic I wasn't all that interested in for many years, um, though that's changed. And the reason it's changed for me, the reason I've become interested in thinking about how the world was created by God, is the fact that um, I'm writing a book on the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin can feel like kind of a downer. Uh, I sit at lunch in my college every day and people say, oh, what are you researching? And I say, the doctrine of sin, and they just go, you know, um, why? <laughs> studying religion is hard enough for, for, for a lot of my colleagues, but um, and sin, that's the worst part. Um, but uh, So I'm interested in, I think the doctrine of sin is really important in Christianity. I think Christianity doesn't make a lot of sense without a doctrine of sin that makes sense to people, that describes something that they experience um, and that they feel the need to be, to be saved from. Um, and... But to understand why, when you say sin, you don't mean judging people and feeling like you're better than them, or just kind of pessimism, Uh, it turns out you need the doctrine of creation. You need to have the doctrine of creation to understand why the doctrine of sin is not a downer. So I'm going to try to show some of that um, in the few minutes that we have. And the one other element, that's, that's, that's a good... Okay. Uh, the one other element that I think is, is, is interesting, I was just reading, there's a book, um, you know, the, the 39 Articles of, uh, um, which is sort of the Confession uh, of Historic Anglicanism, the Theological Confession. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Oliver O'Donovan, a Christian ethicist, wrote a book on it once, and he basically said, Protestants are weak on the theology of creation. That was his, he thought was the worst thing about the 39 Articles, is that it doesn't have almost anything to say about creation. And I think if learning from Augustine, we can see why that need not be the case, why you can have a Protestant approach to salvation and uh, the theology of grace without having to give up or, or ignore the doctrine of creation. So that's, that's why I'm talking about, uh, about this this morning. Many of you will know, but uh, Augustine of Hippo is, is the most influential Theologian after St. Paul, really, uh, certainly in, in the West. All theology in, in, in the West um, is, is largely a footnote to Augustine. You realize that more and more the more you study him. 
he lived in North Africa in the fourth and fifth centuries and wrote a lot. Um, and he's generally seen to be the greatest of all theologians of God's grace. Uh, uh, he's the one who the reformers were reading when they kind of rediscovered um, their sense of the grace of God in the 16th century. Um, and, uh, but he also had a very profound theology of creation. Um, some of you may have read, if you haven't, you should read his book, The Confessions, a remarkably undated book. It's kind of the first autobiography. I mean, there would be no psychotherapy, as we understand it, if Augustine had not written The Confessions. It's this, this work of deep introspection where he's thinking about himself and his motives and his history in relation to God. It's a wonderful book, and he also talks a lot about um, the theology of creation. But what I've been reading recently is a book that my dad told me when I was younger that no one has ever actually read cover to cover, and if they tell you they have, they're lying, um, <laughs> uh, called The City of God. It's sometimes seen as, as his magnum opus. He wrote it over about 20 years following the uh, fall of Rome, the sack of Rome. He was inspired to write the kind of the, a blueprint for a Christian world that after Rome had fallen. It's very, very profound kind of a hinge between the classical world and the medieval world is, is in a way, the book, The City of God. Um, half of the, the first half of the book is basically him dunking on obscure Roman ideas that no one knows about or understands or really cares about anymore. He's like, ha, ah, that's why, you know, that uh, myth doesn't make any sense philosophically. It's just very boring. Um, and you need the footnotes, so don't read that part. But do read, if you, if you, uh, if you want, um, books 11 through 14, which are the closest thing that Augustine ever wrote to a, a kind of systematic theology. It's his account of creation and the fall and God's response. And it's very, very powerful. I read it with my students um, in Cambridge last year, and it was amazing. Okay. So that's some preamble. I just really have two points. They're kind of big points. They're a little bit conceptual, but they're really, really interesting and significant <laughs> once we start unpacking them. Um, so bear with me for a moment. The first feature of Augustine's doctrine of creation uh, and of any Christian doctrine of creation is that creation is good because God made it. And what is creation? Creation is everything. Creation is all the stuff that exists that isn't God. The universe, us, everything. And uh, that idea is traditionally called creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. This is a very important idea in early Christianity. Again, there's basically universal agreement, east and west and so on, that God created everything from nothing, which sounds like it doesn't mean very much. But what it means is that God didn't create um, the world out of stuff that already existed. Nothing existed before God or separate from God. And it also means there wasn't another God who was a rival with God, which is what the Manichaeans believed. So no, everything is from God. And that's actually a very powerful idea. It means that everything you see has its source, its meaning, its purpose, its order in the nature of God. All of us, all of this exists because God wanted it to be the way that it is in some fundamental sense. All of creation is, is, is God's and is returning to God and is oriented to God. Augustine says this, he says, there is only one source of all things and no nature can exist unless it comes from that source. But the thing is uh, that God is good. And so God can't create anything bad by definition. Again, this is widely agreed. And, and by the way, these ideas, they, they come largely out of Genesis 1, calling the creation good, but also bits of John and Colossians and, and uh, so on. 
Um, so everything is good in its deepest nature. Uh, it, it, God made it so it's good, um, and so creation is good. Uh, and that's something. I, that's the kind of idea that I think Oliver O'Donovan thought the reformers lost sight of. So those are two kind of basic ideas. But what's really interesting is what follows about the nature of evil or sin, if you believe those two points. Um, this, the doctrine of creation means that bad things are good things gone wrong. And so to be a sinner, you have to be God's good creation in the first place, by definition. Everything that's wrong in the world is something that was originally right and has gotten disordered or, or twisted. There is no ontological evil, to use the sort of philosophical term. There's no, nothing that's evil in itself because everything was created by God. All bad things are disordered forms of good things. And although that might sound esoteric, it very quickly gets into reality. Um, so the Christmas Carol, you know, is basically the story of a good becoming disordered. It's about the, the Scrooge's miserliness is he gets obsessed with a, a very minor good of money or his, his ambition or something like that in a way that disorders his good. He stops loving the woman he's supposed to love. He loves money more. He stops being kind to others because he loves money more. His love has become disordered and twisted and trapped. And that's basically Augustine's idea of all, all badness um, in, in the world. Um, and it's also what idolatry means. Idolatry is treating a good thing in the world as if it were God. You know, fine to have a, I don't know, a, a beautiful object, a beautiful artistic thing that you love, that you think is great. But if you think that your meaning and your purpose in life comes from being someone who has beautiful things and who should be respected for that reason, suddenly you're starting to treat an object as if it's God, uh, as if it can do more than what it's meant to. You know, the early theologians are always saying, oh, the, you know, they used to, uh, people, uh, human beings after the fall, they started, uh, they saw the sun, they saw that the, the warmth from the sun was good, the light from the sun was good, and then they were like, ha, huh, it must be God. So they're taking a good thing, the sun, and treating it as God. That's the nature of idolatry. And we all do it every day. Uh, but that kind of idea of, of what is wrong with the world follows from Augustine's view of creation. Creation is disordered, disproportionate, good. That's gone wrong. And um, the thing that this is, in, it's, a, it's a good term to have, it sounds obscure, but actually the world, so Manichaeism is, a, is the idea that is a dualist picture of reality where there's a good God and there's a bad God. Every Marvel movie is a Manichaean uh, there's basically an evil thing that needs to be destroyed and good people who fight it, basically. The fantasy genre, except for in the hands of, of the great master, Tolkien is often a Manichaean thing. It's all about you just have to destroy the evil thing that is out there. We're drawn to Manichaean views of reality, but the Christian view is not that. There is no other god that is fighting. The reason evil exists is not that it has its own existence, but because good went wrong in the Garden of Eden. And I think we often view the world in Manichaean terms. We think that the way to deal with things that are bad is to destroy them uh, rather than to love and rehabilitate them. And that's the main point I want to get at. Um, Augustine has a great line about uh, this disordered love thing. He says that this is in his book called On Christian Teaching. He says, the one who lives a just and holy life is one who loves things in the right order so that they do not love what is not to be loved or fall in love, uh, 
with what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved. So everything needs to be loved the right way according to its nature. You should love your spouse, but you shouldn't treat your spouse as God. You should love your children, but you shouldn't treat them uh, as if your meaning uh, and purpose in life comes from them. So love, uh, sanctification is loving things in the right order. I think it's a nice line. So what is the upshot of this? How does this relate? By the way, I don't know if any of you have seen, uh, you know, there's sort of, uh, you might know Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, very famous. There's like a rival statue called Christ the Protector, um, also in uh, Brazil. And uh, I love it because many really funny photos were taken of it as it was, it was being built of this sort of half-made Christ. Um, and uh, a bit like, like this, it's useful for theology lectures. But, um, and this one is obviously the worst statue because it has an incredibly cheesy heart in the middle of it, uh, really kind of, and yet, nothing wrong with some Christian sentimentality. Um, what all this means, the goodness of creation, the fact that creation, that bad, that our badness, sin, is disordered good, it means that God wants to save us. It explains that why uh, God wants to save us. God's attitude toward his creation is love. He wants to redeem it and not destroy it. Um, John 3.17, God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God wants to fix, rehabilitate, untwist, uh, restore order to his world rather than destroy it. And that's because of the world is created by him and it's good. It's also why we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Our enemies are God's good creation. Everything that's wrong is something that has something good at its at its sort of deepest substrate. Uh, Augustine again, I love this line. He's, I mean, just you can just spend you can spend your life thinking about the implications of this sentence. An evil is eradicated not by the removal of the nature in which it has arisen but by the healing and the correction of the nature which has become vitiated and depraved. This kind of thinking is why Christianity is a religion of compassion and mercy and always has been and when it's its right self always will be. This is how God has treated us uh, by sending Jesus when he could have um, rightly just done away with his whole um, experiment. There's a line in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which I understand uh, we've been, you guys have been studying with uh, Jim Palmer, my English teacher, um, taught me everything. Uh, and um, he says, the whole earth is our hospital. That's the Christian vision of reality. The earth is not a battlefield. It's a hospital. It's not even a training ground. At its deepest level, it's a hospital. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria, really important theologian uh, in the fourth century. The guy, who, the reason we think that Jesus was fully divine is because of Athanasius of Alexandria and the very good arguments he made. But he said that the cross of Christ is the therapy of creation. That was his word. It's sometimes translated as salvation, sometimes as healing, but the word is actually therapeion, the therapy of creation. I think that's a beautiful um, image. It's one I'll return to in, in, in one of my sermons this week. Um, so I'll just end with, uh, so we have some time to talk, sort of a, um, with, uh, this is a, a painting, how well can you see, oh, not bad, by Stanley Spencer, a wonderful English uh, artist, um, and it's called Travois Arriving with Wounded at a Dressing Station. 
and um, it comes out of his experience in World War I. So these are people who, these are soldiers who've been in the trenches, who have been shattered by artillery, gunfire, normally artillery, who are being brought to a, uh, a, a sort of a field station, a field surgery, um, a medical tent, you know, um, a dressing station, as, a, as it was called. And what he's, he's done, he's, he's brought together two powerful Christian images in this painting, of a, which is sort of comes out of something he just saw. One, I wonder if you can figure it out, one is the nativity. The animals uh, around this sort of, and there's, this, there's three people in this, um, in this sort of lit space surrounded by uh, animals in the nighttime. That's definitely meant to be drawing on nativity scenes. Sort of they're, they're drawn, the wounded are being drawn to Christ. But what is Christ doing? Christ here is not a baby. Christ is a surgeon. He's a healer. He's the great physician. And this, uh, this is the vision of reality that comes from thinking well about the Christian doctrine of creation, that this is uh, the world we live in that is a, a, not a battlefield, but a hospital. So I'm happy to talk. I could, give, I could talk a lot about any of these aspects. I'd love to. I hope it's made a little bit of sense. Um, but, uh, so happy to discuss. Any questions or thoughts? Yes? This is not a question. It's a, it's a thought. It's sort of an ancient Episcopalian. It seems to me that much of our theology has begun to shift in recent years towards a theology of love mm. rather than a theology of punishment or, mm. or whatever. You, you see writings by uh, both the presiding bishop and uh, very fine author Gerald Bray about God is love. Mm arguing the position that you're making here. Mm. And that seems to me to be a bit of a change in the last 25 or 30 years. Hmm. Thank you. Um, so the, the, there's sort of a, there's a new theology of love rather than of sort of more in, involving judgment and you know, punishment. punishment. Yeah. Um, so there, that, there, I, would, I would parse two different things going on there. Um, so the the idea that God is love and that the foundation of all things is love and the central Christian ethic is love is, has always been the case. Um, the question is whether you think of love in the, without sin, without really having a concept of sin. Um, and I think there maybe are developments in Christianity. It's, it's interesting, I was reading an article about the 1979 prayer book and someone who was saying very happily, we got rid of the penitential tone of the 1928. We, we took away a lot of the language of sin deliberately because it was too negative and people need flourishing and happy words and that kind of thing. And that to me is a problem because your um, love starts to lose its meaning and its teeth if you're not being honest about um, that which needs to be loved or that which has gone wrong. But I think basically you can hold together um, a sense of, of sin and even judgment and so on, but within the context of a larger movement of, of love and healing, which, which is ultimately prior. That's my, what do you think? <laughs> yes? Mm-hmm. 
you know, conciliatory or whatever you want to say, rather than the grace that Jesus Christ mm. has brought to us. Mm-hmm. And that's somewhat the conflict that is hard for me mm. in our culture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm. Yes. Um, I think that's true. I mean, so love, is, it's, it's both the most profound word and the most weakest word you know it means everything and nothing um and it you know it's valentine's day cards and um or it's you know the most sentimental ridiculous movies that have no nothing profound to say about life that you know are marshalling the term love but um but the we want to avoid the trap of saying that the the abuse of a thing means that it's therefore not a good not a thing that's worth using you need to we need to rehabilitate the same way with doctrine of sin the word sin has been used really badly and really horribly uh, uh, in, in the world. But that doesn't mean we should just get rid of the word. The, the, the easy thing is to say, let's get rid of the thing that's being used badly. Um, and what I want to try to do is, is rehabilitate the, the truer, deeper sense. And um, so to, do, to really understand Christian love or to say that you know, God is love in 1 John 4, um, you need to understand the cross. You need to understand the nature of creation. You need to understand sin. All those things are part of a, of a thick. And that love isn't just feelings, so it's not not feelings. Um, uh, Augustine would say, you know, we, we love anything that delights us. That's just what love. We just, we're drawn to things that we, we, we like, <laughs> that make us happy. Um, and that's, uh, that's not a bad thing in itself. Um, so... Uh, it all depends on how it's done, I think, whether it's weak or superficial or hiding some other kind of agenda or, or, um, or something profound. Um, so I'm trying. I, I used to be not interested in the word love in theology. And my friend of mine wrote a book called The Theology of Love. I was like, oh, could it? I'm instantly bored. I'm bored before I've even opened the book. Um, and, uh, but Augustine has, has helped me to, to see better. And then you start looking at scripture and, you know, it's hard to, hard to get away from. I think uh, rehabilitate or heal. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, the the first thing is well, he didn't destroy everything. He just destroyed a lot. Um, uh, that would be um, uh, one one dimension of him. He could have sort of started over completely, and and uh, and he didn't. Um, I think uh, though, um, what you want to focus on most is the incarnation and uh, basically Christ and his, and his work, which is um, so completely about not giving up on that which he would rightly, he, he would be justified in giving up on and yet not doing so. Um, and uh, so that's um, the other interesting thing. Some of you may be thinking, what about the devil? Uh, that's... Um, I, I meant to mention that. Um, and that's, it's a difficult one, actually, for that very reason. It, the devil, in, you know, Augustine talks a lot about angels, and he talks about the devil uh, for, uh, at length, and um, as do almost all theologians uh, who talk about these things prior to the 16th century. And um, the devil, too, was created good. The devil is a creation. Um, the devil has a soul, and that's why the devil is capable of sinning. Uh, and so um, someone like Augustine with a sort of the okay but not amazing answer is that there's something about the nature of the devil's choice that means that he'll never want to change. He'll never want to repent. And so that's why the devil will not be uh, redeemed, um, which sort of the, the, someone like Augustine felt committed to that idea. Um, but it's sort of the devil's own choice that's just permanent. 
Um, so that may not be an adequate sort of answer, but that's. But I, what, I, what I would want to say is that those kinds of the martial metaphors, and there are martial metaphors in, in, in the Bible and in Paul and so on, and military uh, metaphors and so on, and, um, and there are things that, you know, that, that they capture um, important things, but the deepest substrate is what I'm talking about. The fundamental nature of God's relation to reality is, is specifically not to destroy, but to fix uh, or heal or redeem. Um, and that's, that's what Augustine convinced me of this. I wasn't interested in these ideas until he, he made some good arguments. Uh, yes? Yes, what is the situation of So I can't, I can't quite hear you, sorry. Yeah? What is the situation of the creation of God of all? If he created us as, as his image and, and his law, and then Christ came on us and tell us that we need to love each other. So what is the situation that we are not? We are fighting each other, look the wars in, in, in uh, Asia, Russia, Kenya, today. Look all the nuclear weapons that can destroy the earth a lot of thousand times. And look the racism and look like the rejection. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think if if I if I if I got the question, it was what is the point of everything? No, um, the question was uh, it, this. This didn't seem to work. Um, the, this creation, of creating the world out of love for love, and all it, it didn't. The world is horrible. The world is terrible. It's full of the opposite of love. It's full of war and 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 so on. And so, I, th- I think that's what you were sort of drawing attention to. Is that right? Um, and uh, I mean, that's the doctrine of the fall. And that's the, the context where Augustine is talking about all these things is trying to say, why then is it so messed up? Where did things go wrong uh, in, you know, in the Garden of Eden, and why? And can, can it ever be explained? And a lot of theologians think you can never really explain why evil exists. You can only describe it in better and worse ways. Augustine, he says at one point, he says, "All I know is that God can never be defective in any way, but created things can." But he won't say. Why exactly uh, we, we fell is just, uh, there, there's a line in Samuel Taylor Coleridge that I like where he puts these words in Jesus' mouth. He says, um, ask not why you have the disease, but know that I have come to heal it. Um, and that, for many, that's an inadequate sort of response to the, 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 the fact that creation did go wrong. Um, but the alternative is a, is a Manichaean view, that, that there was an evil God or, that God, or God is weak, God is not powerful enough. And um, those, are, those are worse answers uh, for, for a number of um, reasons. They're hopeless um, answers, uh, I think. But that doesn't give any kind of pat response to the problem of evil. Mm. Just in case anyone else has any questions. Um, I, I Colton, yeah. Um, and you may think this is written, not very important, maybe, but when we think about God rehabilitating the world, the world healing the world, I guess this gets into eschatology. Do you think things get worse before they get better, or is, uh. there, is there a hope for improvement? I guess kind of piggybacks on the previous question, but sort of the, the trajectory towards an end. So I think there's, I think there's absolutely ultimate hope that this will work, that that, that it will happen. Her- creation will be healed fully um, in whatever form that that. Uh, that means, um, and uh, otherwise, it's 
if God decides to save something, he's going to save it, and that God can't be stopped or hindered uh, in, in that kind of way. Whether that implies uh, a gradual increase in things getting better, I think that's just empirically not true. I think we can just say, well, that's, you know, you can't often make empirical arguments very straightforwardly in theology, but the idea that the world is, there's all sorts of forms of suffering that have been diminished in significant ways, and, um, but ultimately we all, the theologian in me says, well, we, we all still die, uh, and so things are not healed to that, that extent. Um, so, but that doesn't mean, that's, that's the challenge, and in, in, in the, the, the power of Christianity at its best is to articulate hope within a context of things don't necessarily have to change immediately now, uh, or, or if they don't change immediately now, that doesn't disqualify the truth uh, of what we're talking about. And that's what the eschatological vision is, that's what the resurrection is sort of pointing um, towards. Uh, but I... And I think we can, might want to be able to talk about specific things that where we experiences of healing, soul healing, you know, as well as other kinds of healing uh, in the, in the here and now, but not necessarily that it therefore means everything's, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice and so on, you know, um, is uh, isn't is doesn't always seem to be the case. Uh, yes. But do you think we need to blame uh, uh, Satan? We need to blame Satan, right? So the the classic answer, which I agree with, is that um, Satan helped make it all happen, but we're responsible for the fall. Uh, so um, that the, you you can't say that Adam and Eve were just sort of hijacked; they did it of their own free will. Uh, was what the early church said, and that they were they never would have done so, perhaps, if the serpent hadn't been there. But they still hold responsibility. Um, but uh, that's a very complicated question about because um, we often do bad things for reasons that are outside of us or forces up working upon us that we are not fully conscious of or we don't have control over. Um, but um, there has to be some kind of sense of, certainly in Adam and Eve, there was some sense of responsibility. Uh, at least that's what the tradition holds. Uh, yes? You, uh, you said that, I heard it right, sanctification is the process of loving in the right order. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you say are uh, one or two things that come to mind that make that particularly um, difficult and important in today's setting? Mm. Uh, and maybe a place where you've seen um, that work well. That's a great question, Don. Thank you. The um, sorry. So the question is, uh, what are some examples concretely of of how it might help to think of? Sanctification as loving things in the right order in the context of my own <laughs> life as a, the, in the kind of phase in life I'm in and, and so on. I think immediately of two things. One is, um, and we, my brother wrote a book called Seculosity. It was all about put, loving things in the wrong order and the ways that we do that. And the two ones that really strike home for me out of that were, um, one is, uh, it's very hard not to love your kids in the wrong sort of way, to put too much on them. I think that even if you, you, you believe that, you are under so many pressures to take care of, to, to, to just obsess about your kids and their future and your control and, and how the, every detail of their emotional life and everything. And it's, it's exhausting and it does feel like a crushing load because somehow it's, you want to really love them, you want to maybe love them better than, than past generations in some ways have, 
but that doesn't mean making them a god, which I think we do sometimes without realizing it. And that's, that's a major pressure. So that would be loving your kids in the right order would mean really loving them, but not making them god or the source of your meaning. Um, it's very <laughs> my, uh, it's hard. Um, uh, the other one is work. Uh, uh, you know, work. No one ever tells you not to work more uh, in, in this world. No one ever tells you to not be more successful or make more money. Um, and so that's just an easy one. And you just always, always more, more, more. I mean, academia is just all about exploiting poorly paid labor to make them do more and more work. Uh, you never, it's never enough. Uh, you always need to publish more. You always could be more successful, more famous, more secure, uh, whatever. Um, and uh, and it all, you know, work is good. And um, work is not bad, but work is not God. And um, uh, you know, you spend, I spent 10 years, as a po- or eight years as a postdoc. I was a postdoc for eight years, which meant I basically was paid like an intern. And I was supposed to be grateful for it, you know, because it was because uh, um, they were prestigious postdocs. Uh, and um, that's I was putting a lot of eggs in a basket that maybe it happens to have worked out by the grace of God, but for many people it doesn't. Um, and I think there's there was some disorder in in the, but but you're pressured to do it. It's not just you. So those are two examples. How are we doing on time, Gil? Um, maybe one two more questions. Okay. Uh, yes. versus the whole world is our hospital mm. and, and and I do understand that that's a different mm. mindset in terms of mm. approaching the whole world as a battlefield versus the whole world is our hospital mm-hmm. but I, 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 is it really an either or? Mm. Um, you know in terms of I, I, I like the, you know the thought of the whole world's our hospital mm-hmm. because there's a battle mm-hmm. and and, and is, or, is really the answer of either or? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, so it, the question is, is the whole, is it really an either or? Does the world, you have to choose between the world, a vision of, of reality as a battlefield versus as a, as a hospital, and maybe I'm, I'm overdrawing a distinction. Um, and uh, I would say it's not an either or, but I think there's an order to which one is more important. And I think the deeper reality is the hospital, not the battlefield. I really think that. And I think that is... The na- because of the nature of God, um, basically, uh, and, and the nature of what, what Jesus did is why we love our enemies. I mean, that's, that's the Christian ethic, is to love not just the ones who are easy to love, but the ones who are actively opposed to you. And there are ways of sort of saying, I'm going to love you by destroying you, you know. Um, and uh, I don't think that's quite the right. So th- th- I wouldn't want to say there aren't contexts where the ma- battlefield metaphor isn't the right one uh, in different contexts, but I don't think it's because um, it creates an it creates a difference between the good and the bad, the good the good guys and the bad guys, and um, we love having good guys and bad guys. It feels good to know that I'm better than other people or that they're wrong about something. And often, of course, they are actually wrong. Um, uh, but that's not how Jesus saw the world. Um, I think he came and he said, "Oh, I like that guy who's terrible. Um, I like that person who's messing everything up, uh, who's who's the problem, and I'm going to raise them up." And that has this transformative, creative, resurrection, gospel power. Um, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't back down on my claim, but I, d- I do mean it, it's, it's in the right order. Um, there, are, there are contexts where you... I mean, Augustine was sort of... This whole city of God is 
the, the civilization is falling apart, uh, but we've got to hold on to the, you know, the city of God is a little bit like a fortress and a little bit like a ship. Those are different images he has, a ship passing through uh, a fallen world. Um, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, one more. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, this is an interesting thing. Uh, so, the, oh, sorry. The question is, uh, I mentioned that Adam and Eve sinned out of free will. What do I think about? <laughs> can I say more about free will? Um, I could say a lot more about free will. Uh, the um, the key thing here. So, the, all the differences on the question of free will, all the debates in theology and uh, across denominations, uh, and it, it's very extensive. Um, they're all about the nature of free will after the fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, so when Luther says that the will is bound, he means the will that was originally free has become bound. Augustine says that human nature in the fall became vitiated and corrupted. And so it, what was once free has become bound. Different denominations disagree on the degree to which it's bound, uh, whether baptism or receiving the Holy Spirit free the will newly. Uh, there's, there's a lot of debates there, and I have views I've, they're in my book uh, that, um, uh, out there. But, the, but where there's no disagreement... And it's actually Philip Melanchthon, the Lutheran, uh, writes in his sort of systematic theology that, uh, he com- that the, he's in complete agreement with the medieval theology that Adam and Eve had free will and they sinned out of free will. Basically, they're saying moral responsibility doesn't make any sense um, without free will. And the point of free will is not just to sort of have power of some kind, that we were given a will and understanding in order to love God. That's the purpose. The reason human beings were made uh, with will and understanding was so that they would love God uh, out of knowledge and with intent. And that was something that God thought was good. Um, and it also created the possibility of things going wrong. That's the classical view. But I was really struck to see how there is there's no disagreement on the idea that Adam and Eve sinned out of free will. But there is a great deal of disagreement on what comes after. All right. I would be delighted to. Dear Lord, we... Um, Thank you for this time together. We thank you for the creation that you made and that we are all yours and come from you. We ask that you would send your healing hand um, over all that is broken and disordered um, in the world and in our lives today and help us to have the hope of, uh, and the courage of a vision of uh, ultimate rehabilitation and healing. Give us hope for healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.